And it is uh, good to get back into 1 Thessalonians. It's been a couple of months, really, since we were in uh, the uh, last part of chapter 4, and we looked at the uh, resurrection of the dead in Christ and the rapture of the church. And now we move into this next section, chapter 5, which uh, contains equally important doctrine for us, but doctrine that is rarely discussed. In chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul turns his attention now to the doctrine of the day of the Lord. Now the concept or the phrase day of the Lord is something that is not completely foreign to us. In fact, we are going to be like the Thessalonians when Paul says that in many ways there's no need to write anything because the doctrine of the day of the Lord is so, uh, so frequently treated within the Scriptures. It is not something that is obscure, limited to uh, just a, a tiny text somewhere hidden there in the minor prophets. It is instead a unifying theme for the prophets. It is something, as we'll see, that is reiterated by Jesus Christ himself, and then something that becomes part of the apostolic teaching for the church. This is a, a very important doctrine, and it has enormous implications for this world, and as we will see, for, uh, for us as believers. And as we're going to see also, this is an enormously sobering doctrine. And it is one that we need in our day today, a day in which many are trying to make God into some kind of warm, fuzzy, emotional, loving, tender God who has no wrath, no judgment, no response to sin, just wants everybody to get along. There is a concerted effort to take the concept of warrior away from God, but as we will see even a little bit this morning, God is a warrior God, and He will come and make war against sinners. Now before we get into that, it's important to give an overview of what we have already covered in 1 Thessalonians. As we have gone so far through this letter, we have gone through the initial three chapters which, which really reflect on the past. Paul gives the Thessalonians an update on his life, an update on past ministry. He gives thanks to God for all the wonderful things that God has done in that church. But then at, at that near the end of, of chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul makes a reference to that which was still lacking in the faith of the Thessalonians. There still was something which he needed to impart to them, something which probably resulted from the untimely departure from Paul, of Paul from Thessalonica, uh, some element of, of, of uh, weakness and anxiety that characterized the Thessalonians, uh, a report that Timothy brings back of their condition that, that leads Paul to write this letter to, to correct what is lacking. And so there in 3 verse 10, he refers to it. Then in verses 11 to 13 of chapter 3, he prays about this lack. And then we get into this very significant section in the letter, chapter 4 verse 1, all the way to chapter 5 verse 22, where Paul treats those things he addresses those issues that were, were weak or lacking within the faith of the Thessalonians. And that is what we are in this morning, continue to be in this morning. And we're in this particular section in, in this, uh, from, from chapter 4 to near the end of chapter 5, we're in this section that deals with anxieties of the Thessalonians related to future things. And in particular, there were two areas of anxiety, two areas of worry that plagued the Thessalonians, and they, they needed either instruction or reminder on these things. As we already saw in chapter 4, chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, Paul deals with their anxiety related to the death of believers. Anxiety over death by providing them with new revelation about the resurrection of the dead in Christ and the rapture of the church to be with Christ forever. So in that previous section of future things, 
chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, notice that Paul deals with the anxiety of the Thessalonians over the issue of death by providing them with new revelation, revelation that they hadn't heard before, that dealt with the issue of the resurrection of the dead in Christ and the rapture of the church, the snatching away of the church to be with Christ forever. But now in chapter 5, Paul shifts gears slightly. He continues to address their anxiety, their concerns over issues that, that Timothy reported on once Timothy got back from Thessalonica and informed Paul of the state of the church. Paul, in his pastoral desire, seeks to address these issues. He continues to address their anxiety, but this anxiety that he treats in chapter 5, verse 1 to 11, is over the day of the Lord. And he addresses this anxiety, as we will see, not by giving fresh revelation. In this case, he reminds them of revelation that had already been delivered about the purpose of the day of the Lord and its role in those who are outside of Christ. Now, he's going to draw some implications from that to the church, certainly. But he makes a distinction, and we're going to look at that this morning, that the day of the Lord is for unbelievers. That the day of the Lord is is a day of judgment. It's a day of, of a cataclysmic response of God to the sin of mankind. And, and the day of the Lord is directed to unbelievers. So let's survey this, this paragraph in a little bit more detail before we begin to examine it carefully. When we look at verses 1 to 11 of 1 Thessalonians 5, we observe a very important distinction, a very important grammatical distinction that we find in these verses. And it it really comes down to verses 3 and 4. We see this vividly for us. We're going to note it actually throughout the entire paragraph. But verses 3 and 4 really help us instantly recognize a distinction that Paul wants the Thessalonians to to understand, and this, is, this distinction is the solution to their anxiety. We're going to go through this uh, over several weeks, but already I want you to notice this. In verses 3 and 4, Paul says this, While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. Here we find, in addition to a very important contrast and conjunction, the word but that we find there in the beginning of verse 4, we find this this change of pronouns. In verse 3, he refers to they, them, they. And then in verse 4, he refers to you and he sets them in contrast. And and what we're going to see here as we go through this text, and I'm going to read it in the complete paragraph here in just a moment. We're going to see that in verses one to three, Paul essentially summarizes the entire purpose of the day of the Lord, why it comes. And then in verses four to eleven, Paul will talk about implications that it has for believers today. Now let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'll read from verses 1 to 11. Paul writes, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness." 
So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Now this morning we will look at verses 1 through 3. And as we look at verses 1 through 3, we're going to organize our thoughts around each of these verses, each of these verses emphasizes something about the day of the Lord, particularly as it relates to the, the, its future and its, its coming upon unbelievers. So in verse 1, we're going to note its undeniable reality. It's undeniable reality, verse 1. In verse 2, we will note its unpredictable advent. It's unpredictable advent. And then in verse 3, we will note it's unmistakable target. It's unmistakable target. So our points this morning will be arranged around these three verses and we'll draw observations from each one of these verses. Let's look first of all at its undeniable reality. The day of the Lord's undeniable reality. Paul writes this in verse 1. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Now, at the very beginning, Paul Paul starts with these words. He says, now, as to, and and this is actually, in Paul's writing, this is a, a relatively common formula that he uses to introduce a a new thought, to transition to a, a new idea, and that is what is happening here. Paul is signaling a transition from what he has dealt with in the previous paragraph related to the resurrection of the dead in Christ and the rapture of the church to be with Christ forever, he's now transitioning to a a new thought. However, it is not something that is completely unrelated to what he has spoken of because this is all dealing with future things and Paul is responding to the anxieties of the Thessalonians over these future things. It's all part of one larger section, but we can see it in in these two paragraphs in, in two separate but related concerns. And he says this, he says, now as to what? As to the times and the epochs. Those nouns there, times and epochs, were actually somewhat common and, and related in those days in the early church to, to a particular reference point. In fact, you could say that these are really a kind of a stock phrase that early Christians had to refer to the events associated with the end times. So for example, we see the same wording, the exact same wording used in Acts chapter 1 verse 7. Now if you remember from Acts chapter Uh, One, in the beginning of Luke's history of the early church, Jesus spends 40 days after his resurrection instructing the disciples. And then, when you get near to the middle of that chapter, Jesus is taken up into heaven. We we read of of Jesus' ascension, his bodily ascension, to the right hand of the Father. But just as he is about to leave... As, as the disciples sense that something very significant is about to happen, they pose this question in, in verse 6. They say this, So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So that they're thinking of future things. They're thinking of the future kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament uh, uh, the, the kingdom that would, that would see Israel repent on a, 
on a massive national scale and you would see the Messiah reigning from Jerusalem and, and you'd see Israel as the center of the focus of the entire world. And that was a, a prophecy that was reiterated many, many times in the Old Testament. And, and as Jesus is talking about the ascension to the right hand of the Father, then all of a sudden the disciples are saying, well, this is a shift. Is something going to happen? Hey, is this the time when the kingdom will be established here on earth? And Jesus responds to them and says, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now Paul is going to reiterate that same point in, in verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians 5. But here we see these words already. And, and for the mind of early Christians, times and epochs was a reference to this these future things. Times, the word times was a, a reference to the quantity of time. And, and so you can see that, that uh, whether it's Acts 1 verse 7 or as Paul refers to it in 1 Thessalonians 5, he's, he's referring to the duration of time before the day of the Lord. The, how, how much time in terms of quantity? And that's always a question that people have. Well, how, how many days are left? How many years or, or maybe moments are left? It refers to quantity. The word epochs has a reference to the seasons or the appropriateness. And so it's a, another way of looking at it when asking when are the day of the Lord is going to come and when is Christ coming to establish his kingdom? Uh, sometimes the question will be, well, what kind of environment will, will that be in? What's the season, the, the time that's going to be appropriate for that? So Paul says... Now to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Now let's look at that phrase then when he says, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Well, What Paul is indicating here is that this is not something that is brand new. This is not something that, that is a a brand new concept to you that you've never heard of before. In fact, it's something that you are well aware of, Paul states to the Thessalonians. In fact, he's going to reiterate that at the beginning of verse 2, and he says, for you yourselves know full well. This was not a, a, an element of ignorance on the part of the Thessalonians because they just hadn't been exposed to the truth. No, they, they had. They had the basic teaching that they needed on the issue of the day of the Lord. And note for just a minute that this is different than what Paul had stated concerning the resurrection of the dead in Christ and the rapture. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 13, notice the distinction in these two topics. In chapter 4, verse 13, Paul states to them, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who are in Christ who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who do not have hope. There, Paul deals with the anxiety of the Thessalonians over the thought that if anyone would die before Christ would come to take the church, that somehow they would lose out on the blessings of the future. But notice there in chapter 4, verse 13, Paul acknowledges that apart from his own instruction, they would be uninformed. You see, what Paul deals with in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18 is new revelation. When you read chapter 4, verse 13 to 18, you can't find that anywhere stated in the Old Testament. It's not there. And likely, because Paul was removed from Thessalonica so quickly, apart from his own desire, he was forced to leave. Paul never got around to teaching on this new doctrine when he was there in Thessalonica. And so as the believers work out their faith and think through these issues, Paul is separated from them. They don't have the revelation that they need. They can't look to the Old Testament scriptures. It's not there. And so Paul has to deal with it, treat it. He's got to address this truth and reveal it to them in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. But the difference here is in chapter 5, their anxiety over the day of the Lord. That is not a new topic. 
It's not something that the Thessalonians couldn't study for themselves, having copies of of the the Old Testament in, in their hands. In fact, you think of it, the very first reference to the day of the Lord comes 800 years before Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. Paul wrote around AD 50 to the Thessalonians, and the first reference to the day of the Lord comes from the pen of that shepherd from Tekoa, Amos, who ministered in the 8th century B.C. And in Amos chapter In Amos chapter uh, 5, verses 18 to 20, we have the very first reference in the history of Revelation, not looking at it as those books appear in our Bible, as they are ordered in our Bible, but in terms of the very first scriptural reference in the history of special revelation, the first reference specifically appears in Amos 5, verse 18 to 20. Let me read it. Here Amos writes, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom, with no brightness in it. Now this is written, let's say, around 750 years before Christ. 800 years before when Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. And even the way that Amos writes this suggests that the concept of the day of the Lord, even the the formula itself, even that terminology itself was already used among the people. There was already a knowledge that there would be some future event, some cataclysmic event, as Amos describes, of darkness, of judgment. No light in it whatsoever, only gloom. Now this concept then becomes one of the major unifying themes among the prophets themselves. And you can trace it through the prophets and and they're all speaking with one voice as to this day. Let's even look in some of the the larger prophet the larger prophetic books. Isaiah chapter 13 verse 6. Isaiah has many different references to it. In Isaiah 13 verse 6 we read this, "Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty." Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7, "Alas for that day is great." There is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Ezekiel 30, verse 3, for the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Of course, we could look at the whole book of Joel deals with this topic, but some of my favorite descriptions are found in Zephaniah chapter 1. And we'll read from verses 14 to 18. In verses 14 to 16, we read this. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. Then in verses 17 to 18, I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Over and over again, you read of these references to the day of the Lord, and again and again in the prophets, you, you, you read that 
that it is a phrase that emphasizes judgment. Its purpose in coming is for judgment. Its focus is on sinners. Those who have rejected and rebelled against the Lord. Its arrival is sudden and unexpected. And its scope is cataclysmic. This is the day of the Lord. One writer describes it this way. Quote, the day of the Lord is a day of judgment, a time when God executes his just punishment upon rebels and enemies. When this judgment comes, the righteous are not the focus, although the result of the judgment of God's enemies will be peace and blessing for them. The day of the Lord precedes blessing and is even the means by which blessing will come, but the day of the Lord is not blessing itself. It is darkness, not light. Now, the prophets testified of this day. They described it in great detail. So the Thessalonians had that revelation in their hands. But not only did the prophets, we find the day of the Lord also repeated in Jesus' teaching. Now, at this point, when, when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, they couldn't have the Gospel of Matthew, for example, in their hands. Matthew was just being written at this time. They wouldn't have had copies, but they would have had oral testimony, reports of what Jesus had taught during his earthly ministry. And that teaching is, is summarized for us, recorded for us in, in the Gospels. And we can look at Matthew 24, for example. Jesus' sermon on the Mount of Olives, where he also describes this coming day of the Lord. And just one verse from Matthew 24 reads like this. Verse 21, Jesus says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. We don't have time to look through all of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24 about this. You can do some reading on your own there, but you see as Jesus addresses the nation of Israel, he is reiterating the same truths from the prophets. Nothing has changed. The same ideas, the same emphases are still in Jesus' teaching as they were in, among Amos and Joel and Obadiah, Zephaniah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on. And then when you get into the apostolic writings, you find that the day, of the, Lord, the day of the Lord is affirmed by the prophets as well. In Acts chapter 2, verse 20, as Peter delivers that famous Pentecost sermon, he teaches on the day of the Lord and, and quotes from Joel chapter 2, and he, he, he tells the Israelites, the Jewish listeners, he says, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And then Peter himself, as he writes his second letter closer to the end of his life, he repeats the same teaching and says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So the day of the Lord is, is not some obscure doctrine. It is a doctrine that was firmly established by Old Testament prophets. It was emphasized by Jesus in his earthly ministry. It was repeated in the preaching of the apostles. And, and, and from, all, uh, from all indications from this text, it would have been a doctrine that Paul had succeeded in terms of time, in, in teaching this fledgling congregation there in Thessalonica while he still was with them. In other words, this doctrine of the day of the Lord is a fundamental of the faith. This is not some secondary or tertiary issue that maybe can be discussed if you have free time. Not at all. What we see from this is that this is a very very important doctrine. There is an undeniable reality to it, and it is something that, that all should know. Let's now look at the day of the Lord and its unpredictable advent. It's unpredictable advent. So Paul says, you know, Thessalonians, as you work through these anxieties, and as I 
seek to address them, you know what, you, 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 you must realize that, this, is, that this, this day has been well documented. Its coming has been described. It's something that is very much established. It is undeniably real and it is coming. But then in verse 2, he reiterates what we've already seen in the prophets by explaining its unpredictable advent. Look at verse 2. Here Paul says this, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now he begins by explaining with this word for, he begins here by explaining why there was why, why there was uh, the, the absence of any need to write. And, and, and so he says, there's, there's no need to write to you. Why? Because of this. You yourselves know. Now, we've come across this in Paul's letters to the Thessalonians quite a few times already. At, at regular points, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, and, and, and then stretching throughout chapter 2 and chapter 3 and even chapter 4, Paul continues to call them to testify. He continues to call them to remember the things that he has taught them, the things that he has discussed with them. And he says, you yourselves know this. And he says, in fact, you know this full well. Paul adds that in here in, in his writing. He adds in this adverb that emphasizes accuracy. It emphasizes exactness. As one commentator writes, it's an exactness of knowledge that is the result of careful teaching. Paul says, you've been well taught, so much so that you have an exact understanding of this. You know it full well. And what did they know? They knew that this day of the Lord is going to come. It will come. Now, what's interesting with this verb here is that although in our English translations, our verb appears as a future tense, it will come. In the original, it's a present tense. It would literally read as the day of the Lord is coming or simply it comes just as a thief in the night. The emphasis on that, in that present tense is to add vividness and certainty. This is not a day that may or may not come. This is not something in which the verdict is still out. No, it is, it is so sure and so real that it's already on the way. We've seen this same idea back in chapter 1 verse 10 where Paul gives thanks to the to the, to the Lord for the conversion of the Thessalonians, and he describes this, this conversion by describing the Thessalonian believers as those who are waiting for Jesus, waiting for God's Son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come, whereas really there in the original it is the coming wrath, the wrath that is coming already. It's on its way, and Jesus rescues believers from this impending wrath. So sure is this wrath, in fact, that in chapter 2, verse 16, Paul even refers to it as so sure that it's as if it has already arrived. Now, it hadn't. The day of the Lord, as Paul says here, is still coming. But back in chapter 2, verse 16, as he refers to the Jewish opponents of Christ, he says, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. It is so sure, Paul says, we can speak of it as if it has already passed. That's how definite it is. And Paul says here, the day of the Lord comes. It, it is coming. Now notice how he describes this, this coming. He says it comes just like a thief in the night. Now we already saw that with just a few references in the Old Testament prophets to this day. It was near. The prophets testified that it was going to come suddenly, unexpectedly, without any previous warning. 
It had already been announced that it was on its way and there was no need to to wait for any kind of major prophetic events to happen before it. It's just, it's on its way. And here Paul uses a very well-known analogy that is used elsewhere in Scripture in describing this day, the, the analogy of a thief who comes in the night. And, of course, both Jewish and Gentile readers would certainly catch this, this analogy. Everyone knows that the modus operandi of thieves is to come at night. That's, that's when you, you strike. You want to you wanna come at a time when, and I'm not speaking from personal experience here, of course, but I'm, I'm trying to put myself in that, that uh, position. I, I mean, I talked with Rodney about this, and this is what he told me. So you, you come unannounced. That, that's, your success depends on that. You don't call ahead. You don't leave a calling card and say, tomorrow I'm, I'm going to be here at this time. No, the modus operandi of thieves is to strike unannounced. Not when it is expected. And, and it is to come at night under the cover of darkness and when men sleep. When they're most defenseless. Least alert. Least vigilant. They're not conscious. They're sleeping. And that's when, that's when the thief strikes. And again, this testifies to what the prophets had already foretold. Near is the great day of the Lord, Zephaniah says. Obadiah says the day of the Lord draws near. Isaiah says the day of the Lord is near. They're emphasizing over and over again that it is imminent. It can happen at any time. And Paul, by emphasizing this, is clearly excluding any possibility of setting dates. There's no way to predict this, Paul says. You yourselves know full well, Paul says in a sense of irony, you yourselves know full well that you cannot know. That's what the prophet said and that's what Paul reiterates. You yourselves know full well that you cannot know. You cannot predict it. You cannot set a date and say, okay, I've got so and so much time before this day comes. It is imminent. One writer says this, this does not necessarily mean that it will come soon, but it does mean that it could come at any time. And when it does, it will come suddenly and without warning. Warning has already been given. No further advance warning is promised and none should be expected. So this is an unpredictable day. And so that immediately raises the question, especially in light of what Paul has just said about the the resurrection of the dead in Christ and the rapture, well, isn't that something then that would allow date setting or at least it would allow predictions in terms of the advent of this day of judgment? Well, perhaps this is helpful in explaining what what, uh, Paul is doing here as he emphasizes the unpredictable nature of the day of the Lord. We've already covered the fact that in in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, that the Lord is is also imminent in terms of of, of snatching away His church. You cannot predict it. It could happen at any time. Back in, in that study of that paragraph, we emphasized the imminence of this future resurrection for the dead in Christ, this moment of of being snatched away. Paul believed in its imminency. And he would say to the church, the Lord is near. And he even expected that it could happen even within his own life. It was that near. So if that is the next event on the timetable of God's redemptive activity, then doesn't that somewhat give indication of Okay, now we can set a time for when the, when the day of the Lord will, will occur. Well, the answer to that is, is found in seeing that the rapture, this single event, this momentary event, and the start of the day of the Lord occur 
essentially at the, the same time. So if you cannot predict when the, day, when the rapture will take place, if it is imminent, if it could happen at any time now without any preceding redemptive activity needing to be accomplished, if, if that can happen at any time, then so too can happen the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord commences at that same moment. Both the rapture of the church and the day of the Lord are imminent. You cannot predict when they will come. And that is because that single moment of the rapture coincides with the beginning of the era of divine judgment. The day of the Lord is called a day, and it's not a 24-hour period. That term for day is intended there within the usage of that phrase to refer to a, a period of time of unknown exact duration, but a time when God will increasingly, more and more intensely bring about His judgment of sinners. One commentator says this, Only if the rapture coincides with the beginning of the day of the Lord can both be imminent and the salvation of those in Christ coincide with the coming of wrath to the rest of the world. Were either the rapture or the day of the Lord to precede the other, one or the other would cease to be an imminent prospect and thus the thief in the night and related expressions would be inappropriate. The day of the Lord, as much as the rapture of the church, is unpredictable. And Paul emphasizes to these Thessalonians, listen, the day of the Lord is a revealed, undisputable truth. The day of the Lord is also an unpredictable reality. And now let's just get into this next point here. Verse 3, it also has an unmistakable target and we have to to deal with this a little bit today and then it'll wrap into our next study as we transition into verse 4 and the transition that Paul makes at the beginning of verse 4. But let's look for a little bit here already at verse 3, the day of the Lord's unmistakable target. Verse 3 reads, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. Now verse 3 doesn't really add anything significant to what was emphasized in verse 2. So why does Paul use another analogy here? And he does this in order to create now the contrast that he wants to build between they and you. Between sinners upon whom will come destruction and upon the church which will be the recipient of salvation, which will be the recipient of rescue, which will be the recipient of blessing. So he says, while they are saying peace and safety. Now again, the, these terms refer to another Old Testament, uh, another Old Testament uh, refrain, especially in the book of Jeremiah, as Jeremiah uh, dealt with the pseudo-prophets. The false prophets who were trying to minimize the promises of God's judgment upon the, the nation. Uh, uh, he, as they tried to play it down and say it's really not, God's judgment is really not that serious. It won't be that long. We'll be able to get through it. It's not a big deal. Peace and safety. Jeremiah dealt with it. You can read of it in Jeremiah 6.14 or 8.11 or chapter 14 verse 13. And Paul picks up on that here and says there's coming a time when, when sinners will be saying peace and safety. Thing, sinners will be saying everything's going to be fine. Peace, referring to inner tranquility, the absence of anxiety. You know, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make this 
this culture, a place of peace. Everybody's going to be happy. It's going to be utopia. We've got it under control. Peace. Safety refers to freedom from outward interference. And what is happening here, as Paul describes it, is that sinners, those who are outside the church, those who are outside of Christ, will be saying, God's judgment is not coming. We, we, can, we can expect peace and safety. We can expect security. We can expect tranquility. All of those promises of impending judgment are just not true. And if they come, they will be minimal at best. We can respond. We can endure. We will make it through, Paul says, when they are saying that. In the midst of that, as maybe caught even mid-sentence, Paul says, then suddenly... Then suddenly, the word order of the original puts all the emphasis on this, on suddenness. The word order, you translate literally as then suddenly upon them befalls destruction. Suddenly. And the word for destruction there is a word that refers to utter and hopeless Ruin The loss of all that gives worth to existence. The destruction that is in view here is the kind of destruction that is summarized in words like wrath. We saw it back in 1 verse 10. The believers in Thessalonica, as part of that, that robust faith, were waiting for Jesus from heaven who would rescue, this, rescue them from this coming wrath. Jesus would be the one who would, would preserve them from it. It is, it is the absolute opposite of peace and safety, this destruction. In fact, as Revelation chapter 9 verse 6 describes it, it describes this destruction as a kind of destruction in which men will long to die and yet be unable. It is utter and hopeless ruin. And Paul says, it will come. It will befall them. The word, the verb there that's used, again, is in the present tense to emphasize the vividness of it. To say this is not just something that you can put off. It's something you need to to realize is on its way. And that verb has the idea of, of betaking or befalling. That if someone is unexpected, is unexpectedly on their way somewhere, all of a sudden the worst kind of horror and misfortune falls. Upon them. In fact, Paul describes it as labor pains. Labor pains. He uses another analogy that, that uh, some of us in this room would be really familiar with. Those who have had children before and those husbands who have been beside their wives and felt their hands squeezed to, uh, to mush as uh, their wives went through these labor pains, understand a little bit of this as well. Paul uses this analogy to emphasize the, the, the onslaught of this pain in such a way that once it starts, these pains cannot be paused. There's no way you can, you can hold them off. The process just takes over. And as in the same way of a woman who's heavy with child and the, the time has come and those, those contractions start, anything. And that's the day of the Lord, Paul says. It is coming. It is coming unannounced. It is coming painfully and mis- unmistakably. And understand this, in, in that day, contractions are not as, as they would be considered to, today when you can quickly get to a hospital and you can use different kinds of pain medications to somewhat alleviate that pain. No, in those days, contractions didn't just mean that a child was on its way. It also was one of the times when a woman was most at risk of death. Because in those days, there was nothing you could do once it started. It is an unpredictable day. And then Paul says here at the end of verse 3, and they will not escape. It's a very strong negation. They will in no means, they will by no means escape. There's no way. There's no exceptions here. This judgment is severe. It is total. 
It is total. It is for the unbeliever. As we pause our study for now and see the content of these first three verses, I have some questions for you to think about over the the next week or so as you think about the day of the Lord. Number one, how does my view of God need to change? God is a warrior God. He is a God of wrath, a God of righteous anger. That is who He is. And perhaps what needs to change is that you need a more biblical understanding of God is. Number two, to which category of men do I belong? Are you in verse 3? Or are we going to find you in verse 4 when Paul says, but you brethren are not of darkness? To which category of men do you belong? Do you know the answer to that question with conviction, with sincerity, with truthfulness? To which category of men do you belong? And then number three, am I thankful for the atonement of Christ? If you are part of the brotherhood, as Paul describes them in verse four, if you're part of that brotherhood. You are there not because of anything that you've done. It's not because you've removed yourself out of way of men and put yourself in the other. It's not because of your merit at all. There's only one reason why you as a sinner have moved from the category of being an enemy of God who must fully expect this day of the Lord to come upon you to being uh, a friend, a brother, where Jesus now is is your friend and not your enemy. And that is only because of the atonement of Christ. Am I thankful for the atonement of Christ? The atonement of that one who will rescue me from what this day will bring. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and with a greater sense of sobriety in light of this text. It is so easy for us when we focus on certain texts of Scripture to, to forget your wrath and your indignation against sin. And this text helps bring a better understanding of who you are, a God who will come to bring vengeance, to bring justice, who will mete out righteous wrath against all those sins done against you and your son and your people. Use this text to reform our understanding of who you are. Use this text also to bring sincere self-examination in our lives, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.